The Bowery Boys episode 293, Secret Places of Upper Manhattan. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we are going to the very top of the island of Manhattan to tell the story of four secret spots that we find particularly enchanting. I suppose we could have even called this enchanting stories (laughs) of Upper Manhattan. Each of the places that we'll be discussing today is located in northern Manhattan, either in the neighborhood of Washington Heights or in the northernmost neighborhood Inwood. Now, this is a kind of new experimental type of show. We, we typically do neighborhood histories, and we certainly will do a neighborhood history of these two places at some point. But sometimes when we do those, these very important historical landmarks get kind of overlooked or simplified. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to focus on four places that told the story of these neighborhoods, but often get overlooked. And we are calling these places secrets, quote unquote. Um, But a full disclaimer here, obviously, these places are not a secret to the hundreds of thousands of people who currently uh, live up in Washington Heights or Inwood or have lived there before. These aren't like speakeasies. These are just (laughs) these are just things that we although we should have probably covered a speakeasy. I bet there is one up there. But many of you may not be familiar with these particular places. They may not be on your radar, but we're hoping that by the end of this show, Uh, you might be ready to visit them for yourself. And of course, bonus points for those listeners out there who have been to all four of these. We know you're out there. (laughs) Now, if you don't live in either of these two neighborhoods, you probably visit to experience great Puerto Rican or Dominican food. Perhaps you're visiting or working at New York Presbyterian or going to the Cloisters or Fort Tryon Park or passing through on the Henry Hudson Parkway or Harlem River Drive. Perhaps you're taking the George Washington Bridge, which has been the subject of a past Bowery Boys podcast. And in all those cases, you may have walked or driven by these places and never noticed them. Greg and I visited most of these places together this week while doing research. And I have to say, we had a complete blast. In fact, while we were up there, we actually walked through not one, but two (laughs) different active film sets. And we'll talk more about that later in the show. So where are we going? Well, join us as we sleuth out our favorite secret spots in the Heights. So in this show today, as we as we discussed, we're going to visit two neighborhoods, Washington Heights and Inwood. Let's begin with Washington Heights. And for those listeners who are not familiar with the neighborhood's location, can you situate us here? Yeah. We're in northern Manhattan. So northern Manhattan, the, the most slender part of the island. Tippy top. Yes. So Inwood is at the very top. Just south of that is Washington Heights. The Hudson River is is on the west, and the Harlem River is on the east. And the southern border is about 155th, although it kind of blurs uh, Sugar Hill. The neighborhood is, is just south of that. And then, of course, there's Harlem. Washington Heights has an 
incredibly rich heritage. It was a former Jewish and Greek neighborhood, and today the culture is largely defined by the Puerto Rican and Dominican residents. And in fact, the neighborhood has officially been designated Little Dominican Republic. Oh. Now, there's also a rich Revolutionary War history in this neighborhood. It's, of course, named for Fort Washington, which once sat on the site of Bennett Park, which is located in this neighborhood. Bennett Park, which is the highest spot elevation-wise in Manhattan, which made it the perfect spot for Washington to construct his defensive fort. Yeah, I mean, it was a natural spot. Washington Heights and Inwood also share a kind of rebellious relationship to the rest of Manhattan, both in terms of its terrain and its usage of the street grid, which you'll talk about a little bit later. Yes, it was a late adopter, shall we say. But Greg, where is our first stop up here? Where's our first secret spot? Well, I thought we would go to the largest piece of architecture associated with this neighborhood. We're going to the High Bridge. It's also amongst the oldest architecture in the neighborhood. It's the oldest standing bridge in New York City. It stretches over the Harlem River, linking Washington Heights with the appropriately named neighborhood of High Bridge in the Bronx. It is 1,420 feet long, which is, believe it or not, just a fourth the length of the Brooklyn Bridge. It's only a quarter of the length of the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, it just um, so, it seems hard to believe when you're on it. It makes such an impression, and mm -hmm. that's also because it's so high. Well, it is 138 feet high, which is almost half the height of the Brooklyn Bridge. So what's interesting is it's although it is smaller than the Brooklyn Bridge, it can feel larger because it almost feels like you're on the top of the world here at Washington Heights as you look down upon the city. It's also far less populated with tourists than the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> Needless to say. If you're looking for a selfie by yourself on a big bridge, the high bridge is the way to go. They began work on the High Bridge in the late 1830s, although it was completed in 1848. Even at that time, the land was really undeveloped. There were, of course, some farmhouses and mansions scattered here or there, but it was pretty much in its natural state. But if, if nobody was living up here... Who was this bridge built for? The chief purpose of the High Bridge wasn't to move people, but to deliver water. Of course, the Croton Aqueduct, which was being constructed at the same time and needed a solution for crossing the Harlem River. Yeah, the Croton system developed in New York in the late 1830s. It was a series of pipes wrapped in brick masonry and connected by reservoirs that used gravity to bring water from the fresh, clean Croton River all the way down 41 miles into the heart of New York City, which was having a serious water crisis. And because the city's population was exploding. They didn't have enough water to drink, and the water that they did have was carrying diseases. They didn't have enough water to fight fires, like the Great Fire of 1835, for instance. So I get it that they, they needed to bring the water into Manhattan, but... Crossing the Harlem River here, the, the High Bridge is a really elaborate and beautiful bridge. <laughs> yeah. It looks like a Roman aqueduct. Mm -hmm. Did they really have to... Why did they decide to dress it up like that? Well, 
a little bit of it is necessity, but there's also a lot of American flashiness going into this as well. You know, so I'm not suggesting that building this aqueduct was easy. It was it's one of the greatest engineering feats of the early 19th century, all the tunnels and ditches and even smaller bridges that they had to build to get it to this point. But when they continued south to get to Westchester County, on the other side of the Harlem River... Oh, because it wasn't the Bronx yet. No, no. It was just Westchester County. They had a crisis on their hand. Because at that point, you were actually at a rather high elevation over the river as you were over in Washington Heights. Both sides of that pesky river were very high. Yeah. Engineers had three possibilities. One of them, they could have tunneled under the river. That would have been really complicated. Yeah, it's too costly. People weren't doing that back then. Then they could have built, of course, a very low bridge. In fact, they went with that idea. Lower, like closer to the water, not 138 feet in the air. Yeah, like why couldn't they build a regular bridge, right? So, And why didn't they? Well, your favorite thing in the world is happening here in the 1830s. Another Um, Barnum Museum? (laughs) No, I think the Erie Canal is sending commerce into the New York City area. And so, so the waterways of New York City are getting more and more crowded and more and more profitable. So you don't want to block a water passage because the ships, the vessels are getting larger and larger. A low bridge would have potentially hindered the traffic and stunted the industrial development all along the Harlem River. Which we should note gives into the Hudson. So so you don't want to block that. No. So the third and final idea was to build high. Really high. Really high. And who designed the high bridge? Oh, right. I just sort of skipped past that. Uh, John B. Jervis was the chief engineer of the Aqueduct Project, working off some preliminary plans of another engineer named David Bates Douglas, who was fired. So Jervis then (laughs) succeeds in completing the high bridge. It starts sometime in 1839, and then to quote the Landmark Preservation Report, quote, final construction proceeded at a leisurely pace, and the high bridge was not completed until 1848 at a cost of $963,000. The price of a one-bedroom in Midtown. <laughs> I mean, it's not extraordinary. Um, but I love that. I love that the historical designation report ca- throws a little shade. <laughs> Drinking a little tea in the middle <laughs> of that. Tea. Construction proceeded at a leisurely pace. That is my kind of construction project. <laughs> now, you mentioned a little bit earlier that it does indeed have a Roman aqueduct look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unmistakable. Do you? It rem- has those arches. Yeah, but, it, but some of those arches are gone. If you look at an original picture of the aqueduct, there are, are several smaller arches that do indeed look like something you might find in France or Italy today. But in 1928, so many decades later, parts of the masonry began falling off into the water. And again, the ships were even getting larger. And this had the potential of hindering traffic. So they ended up tearing out a few of those arches and putting up a very beautiful steel span. And that's what you see there today. But some of those stone arches still exist along the sides. One very classic feature of the high bridge that has survived the years is the high bridge water tower on the Manhattan side, constructed over several years itself, also leisurely, (laughs) completed in 1872, along with a reservoir that was built right next to it. 
Wait, the reservoir is on the Manhattan side of the high bridge. So what, water would come down across the Harlem River, across the bridge, and then go into that reservoir? Yes, and the tower would be used, the, the water, to create some pressure. Because by this point, there were a lot more people using water, and there were a lot more people in Upper Manhattan using water. So they needed this additional reservoir. For the flush power. <laughs> yeah, essentially, yes. But is that water tower still in use? Well, none of it's still in use, actually. The high bridge is no longer in use for carrying water. In 1910, a new Croton aqueduct system opened because we just needed even more water. And this, and this just the high bridge just couldn't handle it. The new Croton system would bring water down to the Jerome Park Reservoir in the Bronx. And that water would then be distributed into Manhattan and to other places via underground pipes. So with the high bridge obsolete, it stopped carrying water in 1917. And then a little bit later, in the 1930s, Robert Moses ah, yes. eyes that unused reservoir. He's like, well, I have an idea. Let's build a swimming pool. So this indeed was one of Robert Moses's very first swimming pool projects. And it is an active swimming pool to this day. In fact, the other day when you and I walked over to the high bridge, we passed the swimming pool and it was one of the two locations, film locations that we walked through. <laughs> And we, you know, briefly talked to a number of extras heading over to the swimming pool in their bathing gear who told us that it was one of the shooting locations for In the Heights, the the film remake <laughs> or the film version of Lin-Manuel Miranda's Broadway musical that's coming out next year. Yeah, so we, we actually didn't see real swimmers in the swimming pool. We saw actors Pretending to swim. In a pool filled with water that arrived via underground <laughs> pipes. Now, in 1967, the Highbridge Water Tower was declared a landmark. And then three years later, the Highbridge itself and the Aqueduct and Pedestrian Walk were declared landmarks. Which we just walked across. It mm -hmm. felt very new, though. Yeah. You're saying that that's, that's part of the original structure? Unbelievably, people have been walking over the high bridge since 1864. I would even go as far as saying that the high bridge was kind of the 19th century high line. Oh. And the people would take ferries and excursion steamers to this area. There were hotels and restaurants that catered to tourists. And it would be packed on the weekends. There were bespoke cocktails being served. <laughs> Matcha bars. No. Um, by the 1970s, though, the bridge was completely closed to pedestrians until it finally reopened in a grand new renovation in 2015. And really, crossing the high bridge is a thrill. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing the fact that, at least when we were there the other day, and we were, at one moment, the only people on the high yeah. bridge is what permits you to categorize the high bridge as something of an overlooked monument or a secret? It's barely secret to those who travel on the Major Deegan or any of the variety of Robert Moses highways. The that Harlem are River Drive. Yes. You probably see it every day if that's part of your commute. But most of you, I will bet, have never walked on it. So we want to encourage you to visit the high bridge and take a stroll on it from either borough. Well, for my first story, I thought I would take us west of the High Bridge, along the southern border that you laid out there, Washington Heights, right on the border with Hamilton Heights. 
between 153rd and 155th and between Riverside Drive and Amsterdam Avenue. Now, since 1842, this parcel of land with its dramatic slopes and its um, lovely shade trees, this land has been the final resting place for thousands of New Yorkers, some of whom are actually among the most prominent citizens who ever lived in New York. Names that we have said here on the show dozens of times. And today, we're actually going to be visiting them in person. For I am taking us to the Trinity Cemetery and Mausoleum, Trinity Church's other cemetery. They're uptown and too often overlooked cemetery. How exciting. We are visiting a cemetery and it's not a ghost story show. No, I, I literally have no ghost stories Good. about this cemetery. But you said Trinity's other cemetery because, of course, Trinity Church down on Wall Street has a very, very old cemetery of its own. In fact, they have two cemeteries, the graveyard at Trinity Churchyard, um, which dates back to the late 17th century and is home to a star-studded roster of residents, including um, Alexander Hamilton and his wife, Elizabeth Schuyler, Robert Fulton, a whole host of Revolutionary War heroes. And then there's also St. Paul's Churchyard. A burial ground that includes a very famous Shakespearean actor who did pop up in one of our ghost story shows. I think you're referring to George Frederick Cook, mm-hmm. <laughs> who, um, who may still be kicking around looking for, I believe it's a missing finger or a missing mm-hmm. toe. <laughs> a missing toe. And, yes. and, and meanwhile, his skull is being used, uh, was being used on stage in Hamlet. So, yes, there we have a ghost story. <laughs> And there actually was a third cemetery, the old St. John's Burial Ground, which was located in today's West Village, just off of Hudson Street between Leroy and Clarkson. In the late 19th century, that burial ground was transformed into St. John's Park, which is today known as James Walker Park. And that's just west of the Hudson Park branch of the New York Public Library. But with all of those cemeteries downtown, why did they need another cemetery? And then why put it all the way up in this fairly undeveloped area? Well, because by the 1830s, the city, of course, as you mentioned with the high bridge, was growing very quickly and they were running out of space in their other cemeteries. You've seen how packed those places are. (laughs) They were looking for new spaces, either for a new cemetery that they owned or even to take out space in an existing cemetery, because by 1838, there was a new cemetery in Brooklyn, Greenwood, which was open and accepting new permanent residents. But another option was to go way up to 155th Street, which was nearly off the grid, literally, because at this point in time, the grid plan that had plotted out all the streets and been adopted as part of the 1811 commissioner's plan stopped at 155th Street. So north of that, the city planners just thought, I mean, it's going to be generations before, you know, the city actually gets all the way up here. And it's just the terrain is so much different. It would have been difficult, at least in their thinking in the 1810s, to construct all these roads in that area. And only a handful of people were living there. So when did Trinity buy the land here? They established the cemetery in 1842, and they bought it from a developer uh, named Richard Carmen. 
He had been developing his own little residential enclaves and communities, including one just south of here called Carmenville. But now this particular spot had been farmland. The, the whole area was so remote, you know, it was home to wealthy families and estates, but also some farms. It seemed to be the perfect place for a peaceful countryside cemetery. Were there no neighbors at all? No, just to the north of here, actually, was the estate of John James Audubon. I mentioned that Trinity developed this in 1842. Audubon had actually purchased his land for his estate the previous year, in 1841, and actually he bought his land on the same day that Carmen had purchased his. The very same day in 1841. Birds of a feather. (laughs) Speaking of which, in 1842, Audubon had just published his ornithological biographies. Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> Ornitholo- ornithological, you can't even say it once. <laughs> ornithological biographies. And he would soon publish his much more widely circulated Birds of America. Now, you said it was just north of the cemetery, right? Yes. Because today, on that spot where his estate was, you have Audubon Terrace. Right. Which was developed in the early 20th century. Right, by Archer Milton Huntington who oversaw this development of these cultural institutions, including the Hispanic Society of America and also the American Academy of Arts and Letters, among other institutions. But back to the 1840s now. Trinity has bought this land uh, between 153 and 155, and they hired a young architect to design and lay out their cemetery. Not an easy job because of the rocky terrain, the rolling hills, and they chose a young man named James Renwick Jr., who in the next couple of years, of course, would go on to great acclaim. He would go on to design Grace Church. He designed the Smithsonian Institution, the the Castle Building in Washington, D.C., and of course, also designed St. Patrick's Cathedral in the 1850s. And Tom, did you also know that he was an assistant engineer on the Croton Aqueduct, just to tie it back to the high bridge? He was so busy. (laughs) So this was one of his earliest commissions here, Mm -hmm. this beautiful cemetery, um, which is curious because it's rather stunningly altered from his original design today. Well, yes. And let's just say that the city was growing quickly up and around this once remote cemetery. And most restless of all was 11th Avenue, which north of 107th Street merges with and becomes Broadway. Broadway would soon need to, you know, keep continuing up Manhattan as the streets were actually being laid out and developed. But here at 153rd Street, Trinity Cemetery was in its path. It was really a rather grave situation. And meanwhile, by this time, the cemetery is actually attracting a lot of attention and is interring interring a whole host of major mid-century New York City names from socialites to mayors, writers, artists. So I headed up to the cemetery to investigate who found their final resting place here and to also find out how the cemetery handled Broadway's rather rude imposition. Well, I have made it to Trinity Cemetery, and I am walking through, walking along the lovely winding roads. It's a beautiful, hot, suddenly, summer afternoon, 
and I am making my way through the shade trees and along this path to meet up with Eric Washington. Eric is a historian, an author, and a guide, and he's the go-to guy for talking about Trinity Cemetery. And Eric is waiting for me next to a historical marker, of course, uh, this one commemorating the Revolutionary War. Hello, Eric. Nice to meet you. Hi. Good to meet you, Tom. How's everything? Uh, so, so tell me, why are we meeting here? Well, I'm standing here by a, a marker. It's a boulder that is said to have been reclaimed from the site when the cemetery had not yet been thought of during the Revolutionary War. It marks the Battle of Fort Washington, or, uh, or Washington Heights is sometimes called. So we're standing at this Revolutionary War site memorial, but we are in today's Trinity Cemetery. Now, where we left off in the show was the development and the opening in the early 1840s of the cemetery. Exactly. Um, Trinity Church on Wall Street, so 10 miles away, started looking for a place to, to establish a rural cemetery. They were getting a lot of flack, mostly hysteria. You know, New York in those early years of the 1800s and the late years of the 1700s, almost annually we'd have these outbreaks of yellow fever. They often got flack for that because people thought that it, it emanated from the shallow burials at Trinity Churchyard, which wasn't really true. And it wasn't the only churchyard, but they were the preeminent church, so they got the blame for it. And that explains why people kept would then be burying as often as they could, the dead outside of the city outside limits. Outside of the city limits. So, th so the placement here at the very top of the grid or on the other side of the line basically meant that this was as far as they could go. They bought this plot and they opened in the early 1840s. Did it fill up quickly, do you know? Or was it a mostly like an undeveloped park? Well, it was bought as a cemetery. So uh, people did start buying right away. They bought it in September of 1842. And... It was laid out by James Renwick Jr., and um, he laid out, it, the records say, the, the easterly division where we're standing. And then it was later improved around 1870-71 by Calvert Vox um, and company. So Calvert Vox was a co-designer of Central Park with Frederick Law Olmsted. So Renwick is responsible, at least on this side of it, on this eastern side, for these winding pathways. And really, I guess he had his hands full trying to work with this topography. Right, because it was naturally hilly. We're on the heights. These were all referred to as Harlem Heights at, at that time. And they really are the heights. Anybody who's, I mean, I've arrived here. I'm still huffing and puffing. These. <laughs> so, you know, we have a lot of this natural outcropping up here that gives this place character and a little bit of effort to move around in. If you headed west of here, the other half of the cemetery will precipitate toward the river mm -hmm. really drastically. So It's pretty dramatic. It's pretty dramatic. Of course, once you get down there, you have to walk back up. You have to walk back up, right. <laughs> <laughs> they should have a funicular. Um, so the cemetery opens, like you said, in 1842. Renwick's design is in place. It's beautiful. People are attracted to the space. It's lovely. But then just a couple decades later, and I had hinted at this back in the studio with Greg, but a couple decades later, they had a situation on their hands because the city wanted to extend Broadway up through the cemetery. Exactly. So around 1869, they get notice from the city. Even though the grid had existed on paper, mm -hmm. it was still relatively country. And Broadway, what we know as Broadway up here today was known as the Bloomingdale Road. So when, when they bought the property, that still cut through it. They were fairly indifferent to it. So there were burials in the roadbed because it wasn't a highly trafficked road, the Bloomingdale Road as it was called. Trinity Church obediently starts moving 
graves that are in the roadbed. Because uh, people are buried in the People way. are bur buried in the roadbed. Uh, indeed, one of the casualties of the widening of Broadway uh, was a segregated section, which was not uncommon in the 19th century, called the Colored Ground. It may have been the same ground or adjacent to the burial ground for the Colored Orphan Asylum, which had been burned down in 1863 during the famous draft riots. Right. So that was one of the first casualties. Most of the graves that were pulled up were uh, supposed to be distributed elsewhere throughout the cemetery. We've never been able to relocate those specific graves. But also it seems like another casualty of the imposition of Broadway is that it would cleave the cemetery into two parts, a western part and, and an eastern section. How did they link those two together? How did they make it feel like one cemetery? Well, when the cemetery was laid out, it was always acknowledged that it was in two parts, an easterly division and a westerly division. When the Bloomingdale Road was widened as the boulevard, which then became known as Broadway, the cleavage was much more clear. And in order to link it, they created a suspension bridge. It may have been the first suspension bridge on Manhattan that doesn't really get acknowledged because it's not over water, it was over a road. Mm -hmm. um, and it stood for about 40 years from between 1871 until 1911. And it was a beautiful structure, a gothic bridge. A gothic bridge. That, that straddled over the boulevard, later right. Broadway. And was this a pedestrian-only bridge? No. Although it was often referred to as a footbridge, it was clearly wide enough and used for horse-drawn hearses to carry coffins across the bridge from one half of the, from one division of the cemetery to the other. Over Eric Broadway. is showing me a photo actually, uh, I guess you use this for your tours, of a horse-drawn carriage crossing this beautiful suspension bridge. Um, really dramatic. It's strange to see a bridge crossing over Broadway. Yes, Broadway is a river of sorts. <laughs> it's a river of traffic, um, but it's, uh, water doesn't go under it. So it's often, it was easy to forget once it was gone as an historic suspension bridge in Manhattan. And so this suspension bridge stood over Broadway for several decades, but it was demolished in the early 20th century to make way for another notable structure that we haven't yet mentioned, and that is the Church of the Intercession. Exactly. So Church of the Intercession, which is in the Easterly Division proper, uh, this is its third location. It had been first on just east of the church on 154th Street, then on Broadway and 158th Street, and then where it is located today, facing Broadway at 155th Street. Many of our listeners might know the Church of the Intercession as it is the departure point for an annual procession that takes place in late December every year. Yes, it's the oldest ongoing Christmas tradition in New York City, so it predates the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. That's quite a statement. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> the um, oldest continually running Christmas tradition in New York City. Right. And that is? And that is the reading of probably the most famous Christmas poem in the English language, which begins, "'Twas the night before Christmas, a visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Clark Moore, who was buried in the westerly division of the cemetery. So he was relocated here from St. Luke's downtown in Greenwich Village mm -hmm. in the 1890s. And on the night that it occurs every year, there's a reading of a visit from St. Nicholas the poem is read in the church. The, the poem is read in the church, and then there's a procession from the Church of the Intercession across Broadway, and then down that steep hill to the Westerly Division to the gravesite of Clement Clark Moore, where a wreath is laid and a, a benediction is, is, is read, and then there's a, it's a reception afterwards. 
So Clement Clark Moore then is obviously one of the many notable names here of people buried in Trinity Cemetery. But there are so many more. There are so many more civic leaders and mayors who are buried here. Mayors uh, Fernando Wood, Mayor Cadwallader uh, D. Colden, Oki Hall, elegant Oki. One Mayor Koch, of course. Yes, Ed Koch. Uh, we're in fact close we're, to him right now. We are. Hi, Mayor. And then, <laughs> yeah. there are also many socialites who are buried socialites, here. Socialites. Uh, Rita Costa Leidig, her sister, Mercedes Acosta, Henry Brevoort Jr.'s wife, Laura Carson, uh, who supposedly threw the first costume masquerade ball that was acceptable in New York in 1840. Is she part uh, of your women's history tour? She is. She is. And um, then, of course, the Mrs. Astor. And the Mrs. Astor, as she would have you know. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be confused with other Mrs. Astor. There's even a famous naturalist who we already mentioned in the show. Uh, one of the most famous in the world, John James Audubon, who's buried here. And we can't forget Eliza Jumel. And Eliza Jumel. She's the probably the oldest actual resident of the neighborhood whose house is still here, the oldest house in Manhattan, and she's buried here. If listeners want to get in touch with you, if they want to book one of your tours of Trinity Cemetery, how do they do that? Uh, they can reach me on my website, uh, ekwashington.com. Um, I often give tours. Um, I actually start creating these tours in accordance with the Municipal Art Society. You also give tours to school groups. I also give uh, tours to school groups. It's an, a unique way of learning New York City history through the lens of its burial places. And we should note that your tours are totally independent of Trinity. You don't work for Trinity. Right, I don't work for Trinity. They're totally independent of Trinity. They've been really gracious over the better part of 20 years of allowing me to give tours. I, I couldn't do this without them. Thank you, Eric Washington, for showing us around Trinity. Thank you, Tom Myers and the Bowery Boys. Thank you. <laughs> Trinity Cemetery is a beautiful place. In fact, it is one of the most picturesque places. Just bring your camera to Trinity. And of course, we highly recommend that you visit in December for the Clement Clark Moore procession. I went a few years ago, and it is like, check that one off your bucket list of New York City things to do. Now, Greg, where are you going to take us next? Well, chronologically, we're going to go even further back than the 1830s and 40s. We're headed to Inwood and the oldest farmhouse in Manhattan. And we'll go there after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, 
began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So our first two stops are in Washington Heights. Tom, it is time for us to go to a neighborhood north of Washington Heights. That is Inwood. Inwood was the last area of Manhattan to be incorporated into the urban sprawl. And perhaps because of that, it's the place to get in touch with the earliest aspects of New York City history. In fact, it's so natural, it's so connected to the earth that did you realize that there's an earthquake fault line under one of its principal streets, Dykeman Street, and that the Dykeman Street Fault, as it's called, actually caused an earthquake in 1989 that registered two on the Richter scale. It registered, I'm sorry, it registered two? Yes. So it wasn't, it wasn't a huge earthquake, but it was... It was enough to shake things up a little. It might have shaken the tapestries over at the cloisters, but I think other than that, like <laughs> it caused only curiosity. Now, the residents of Inwood are particularly proud of their neighborhood history because it is a, unlike the rest of Manhattan, it has a wildly nonconformist grid plan, and they sometimes have a status of an outsider neighborhood because it f- almost feels like a little village on a hill. It almost feels like you're not in Manhattan at all. Yeah, the, the grid plan is definitely doing its own thing. It kind of like is oriented off to the northeast. <laughs> yeah, yes. right? it, it's definitely not in line with the city's grid plan. And it's all because of terrain and because of some of the history that I'm about to share with you. Now, up until the mid-19th century, this area was actually referred to by the name of Tubby Hook. Tubby Hook. Yes. You will not be surprised to learn that that name changed to Inwood once this district became very, very popular with extremely wealthy families who built mansions all along the natural forest here. Retreats for New York wealthy families like Isidore Strauss of Macy's fame and Samuel Lord of Lord and Taylor had a lavish mansion up here. But the jewel of Inwood is Inwood Hill Park, which is the last remaining forest land in Manhattan Island. Forest land, as in like an uncultivated wild park? Yeah, it traces back to the original forest, which spread throughout this whole area. It is not a planted. I'm sure there are some areas that are planted, that have plantings, but this is an original forest. And it's one of my top five places to go in all of New York, this park. And didn't we talk about this forest, this wild forest, 
back last year in our Life in New Amsterdam podcast mm-hmm. um, because it was here, allegedly, that Peter Minuet and the others, quote unquote, purchased the island of Manhattan. Yes, air quotes, bought it from the Lenape in 1626. The transaction happened here. Yes. If you wander through Inwood Hill Park, you'll find a marker that denotes the spot of an old tulip tree where supposedly this exchange happened. Now, of course, it's very nuanced and involved, and we encourage you to go listen to our Life in New Amsterdam show for more information on that historical event. So then imagine, Tom, from the moment of that sale Mm -hmm. in 1626, almost a century and a half of of very little change into this neighborhood until the year 1784. What happened in 1784? It was on that date that a farmhouse was constructed just a 10-minute walk from that old tulip tree where the sale of Manhattan happened. Just a 10-minute walk. A farmhouse was constructed by a man named William Dykeman, a descendant of an old Dutch family. Now, flash forward to 2019, and that farmhouse, the Dykeman farmhouse, is still with us. So we have the old forest, and we have the Dykeman farmhouse, these two vestiges of the late 18th century. It is the oldest farmhouse in Manhattan. And of course, in Manhattan, there you can still find other structures like Francis Tavern that date from this period. But you're saying this is the oldest farmhouse on Manhattan Island from this period. Right. An island that used to have hundreds of these types of houses. And today, this is the oldest one. So this gave me a reason to run around Inwood. I went up to the Dykeman farmhouse and took a little tour of this genuine New York City treasure. I'm in Inwood, actually, at the corner of Broadway, West 204th Street, at the Dykeman Farmhouse Museum. Actually, I just stepped into the grounds, into the gardens here. There's a little cannon on the side. Oh, some tourists are following me in because this house is like it's like a unicorn. It's surrounded by modern buildings, let's just say. It's, it's across the street from a Sitco gas station. There's a sports bar, and there's a Seatown supermarket across the street. So, you know, this is not one of those tucked away places. It's very much part of the city. So, so we're going to go inside and explore the history of this place and kind of get to the bottom of why is it even here? How did it manage to survive for so long? I've made my way into Dykeman Farmhouse Museum on this nice, cozy morning, and I'm here with Meredith Horsford, the executive director of Dykeman Farmhouse Museum. Hello. Thank you for welcoming me into the home. Hello. Thanks for coming. (laughs) My first, first question, this house has always been fascinating and slightly mysterious to me for for the following reason. There are many historic houses in this world, and they are usually in the context of like a lavish estate, or there's something about it where you just kind of can get lost in whatever the kind of romantic version of what that house is supposed to be. Here, what is remarkable is the Dykeman Farmhouse is in the center is really like is the center of Inwood in in many ways. Is that because this house has always been here on this spot? It's never moved? That is Is correct. So the house, a lot of people think it's been moved. Mm -hmm. But if you actually were to go downstairs in the basement, you would see that it's built onto the original bedrock. 
Um, it's never been moved. And when this house was built, there was nothing else here in 1784. It was not part of New York City then, and obviously it is now. Yeah. So the city has really grown up around it. When you look up from the street, the house looks like it's up on a hill, mm -hmm. and it looks kind of small. One of the reasons that it looks like it's on a hill is that what is now Broadway, which is the street that we are on, it, before it became what we now know as Broadway, it was the Kingsbridge Road. Oh. And when they originally tried to you know, dig down to make it a real road, they dug down about 15 feet to make it a little bit more flat because Upper Manhattan is very hilly. Yeah. So originally the road would have been about 15 feet higher than it is now. But when they dug it out, now we appear that we're on this big embankment. So it was, in fact, built in front of a road. It was just the Kingsbridge Correct. Road, which literally did go to the Kingsbridge Bridge. Yeah, right. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> yes. So let's talk a little bit about the, the Dykemans. They're, they're, they are the first family of, of Enwood, right? I mean, they are yeah. like, they are the... They're the European settlers that were here first. Right, right? after the after the Lenape. After the Lenape, sure. right. Yeah, tell me a little bit about uh, the, the first Dykeman. His, uh, Jan? So yes, Jan Dykeman was the first Dykeman to come here from the Netherlands in the 1660s. He first settled in what we now know as Harlem. Mm -hmm. And then after he got married, um, he settled in what we now know as Inwood. Um, so the first house that the Dykemans built was not this house. It was northeast of here, roughly where the MTA rail yards are today. And that was the house that was destroyed during the Revolutionary War. That was the first version. And there were a couple generations of Dykemans that lived there in that, yes, in that version, Yes, and then right? this one was built in 1784. So... Who would have lived in this house around 1800? So um, William Dykeman was the Dykeman that built this house in 1784. We actually have a little bit of a family tree in the room across the hall where you can see who was living here in approximately the 1820s. So it was he and his kids. Mm -hmm. There were also one free black man and a few enslaved people as well. Okay. And... They were on the property, I guess, to help out with the farm. Do we know the sort of specifics? We of the, don't those? know. I mean, literally, we don't know people's names, unfortunately. Oh. Um, we know very little. However, one exciting upcoming project that we're working on, and we recently got a grant from the New York Community Trust to actually hire someone to try and a deep dive and try and find some additional research because it's really important to us to find that information yeah. and to make it part of our our story well here. it's it's the whole story you Absolutely. know i mean you, it's almost incomplete don't that's tell exactly it. right now for most of the 19th century the dykemans actually owned most of Inwood, or mo really, I mean, most of this land, I think up until the 1860s, right? Yeah, absolutely. Was so their property. Their property was from present day, approximately um, 190th Street to 215th Street mm -hmm. from river to river. I, I think one of the extraordinary stories of this house is like really the fact that it exists at all. The fact that somehow this managed to survive. Then you have the 20th century with the city greatly expanding and then Inwood finally, you know, developing more as sort of a, a place where people from downtown were moving up here so right. that they could have better lives. The house was really endangered. How was it eventually spared? The family lived here until the mid, mid to late 1800s. At that point, they had built another house. Um, they were renting this house out. Then it was sold out of the family's hands. And there's a period of time in the late 1800s to the early 1900s where it was a rooming house and had fallen into pretty 
severe disrepair. So in 1915, there were two Dykeman sisters. They were descendants of the last Dykeman to live in the house, Fanny and Mary Alice Dykeman. They bought the house. They restored the house and they really had the idea to turn it into a museum to preserve their kind of family story and family heritage. Well, why don't we do a little walking through the house? Well, take me to the kitchen first. That's downstairs, Let's right? Let's go take a look. Watch okay. your head. Oh, yeah. Oh, my. I am Low a- <laughs> head room when you go into the kitchen. This is not for six foot two people. So as we walk downstairs, you'll see over here, this is the Manhattan schist that the house is literally built on top of. Yeah, it, this is yeah the type of thing you'll, you would see over at Inwood Hill Park, but it's the house is adjoined to it. <laughs> and this is like nature's air conditioning. Yeah, that's it true. It keeps really cool down here in the summer. Oh, now we're in the kitchen and it is it, very low headroom, but it also has a beautiful hearth with a, a faux fire going on, which I love. That's a nice touch. So this is a place where you would obviously cook, but it's also there are fireplaces above this Mm -hmm. throughout the house and as well as on the other side of the house. So the fireplaces, obviously, you would have wanted to keep going so that you could stay warm because clearly they did not have heat. So when you take kids down here on a tour, I'm sure this is really fascinating and probably inconceivable. I would say this is probably the favorite room for a lot of school groups. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that they find most interesting is absolutely this is just looks like a fireplace. Yeah. Not your kitchen. But when we go through some of these objects that we have here, then they start to see that this is, you know, that they have the modern day version of this toaster and (laughs) that they have a waffle iron at home. It just doesn't weigh, you know, 40 pounds. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see the kids kind of draw those similarities between their present day lives and what people would have done. There was a room that we were sitting next to with a bunch of artifacts. Can we check that out? Yeah, we call that the relic room. The relic room. Let's oh my check gosh. it out. Okay. But again, watch your head. <laughs> Duck. The relic room really is a, <laughs> a room of fabulous and ancient relics uh, behind glass. So this room would have probably originally been a bedroom. That's exactly okay. right. Mm-hmm. All right. So in the early 1900s, which was a very busy time up here, even though Inwood had not really been established as a neighborhood, Mm -hmm. in the early 1900s, there were a couple of amateur archaeologists who were doing a lot of digs in the neighborhood. And these are the things that they unearthed, which are now part of our collection. Oh, wow. A- a- amateur archaeologists just like, let's just see what the earth yeah, let's holds. let's dig a hole and see what we can find. And they found a lot of really interesting things. But these amateur archaeologists, this was not the only thing they found in the ground, right? No. So during the Revolutionary War, the British hired um, what were called Hessian soldiers, German mercenaries were hired to fight on behalf of the British and they would have stayed in what were called Hessian huts Um, and we actually have one in our backyard. So when Bolton and Calver, the amateur archaeologists, were doing their digs, they found the fireplace of the Hessian hut that is in our garden Mm -hmm. and took it apart and then it was reassembled here on our property and then the rest of the hut was built around it. Can we go outside and look? Uh, I'm dying to see it. Let's check it out. <laughs> if it's not raining. <laughs> this is the part that has um, always intrigued me the most about Dykeman Farmhouse, the Hessian Hut. All right. We are standing on the back porch of the Dykeman Farmhouse. Now, an- a- another detail which I-, I-, I really do need to express is that it's 
beautiful because there is this lavish garden that kind of wraps around the house that uh, that does give it kind of a natural flair but over to the right there is a little hut <laughs> that's the hessian hut right that's it. how many men would something like that have held it's very small it, it is very small <laughs> yeah and uh, it's about eight to ten Eight to ten people. Yes. I don't see much uh, ventilation no in that room. <laughs> they lived, you know, it was a military hut. They, That's they had right. To be, it had to be very, very stark. So how does the Dykeman Farmhouse Museum reach out to the community? How does it actually become an active part of, uh, of Inwood? Sure. Um, well, we feel like that's our mission, right? Yeah. Um, that's why we're here. We try to do a lot of different types of public programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do a lot of children's programs, especially in the summer. Um, we do. We, in fact, had a history lecture here last night on the back porch. Oh, um, oh great. Right? It's so great on a summer day. Do you have reenactors here, I assume, on occasion? <laughs> we don't. Oh, darn it. I don't have I'll, any reenactors. I'll, I'll come back. I can dress okay. as George okay, Washington. Good. Or a Hessian. Uh, done. <laughs> That's happening. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you very much, and have a great summer, and good luck with all of the with the with all of the kids who are going to, whose lives are going to change. Oh, wow. <laughs> thank you. The farmhouse, the Dykeman farmhouse sounds amazing, but... Can we just go back to that Hessian hut in the backyard? You said <laughs> yes. a Hessian hut. Yes, the Hessian hut. Um, I actually inspected it. I didn't go inside of it, but it, it it's a very, very small structure. So it's kind of extraordinary to think of this as a military barracks. Especially because Germans are so big. <laughs> and by the way, there is a pizza hut over in Marble Hill that the that the dudes in the Hessian hut could call if they wanted some takeout. So it's a Hessian pizza hut. A pizza Hessian hut. <laughs> so Tom, we have been all over. Mm. How are we going to end our survey of Upper Manhattan landmarks here? Well, for our fourth and final story, I thought that we would end with a kind of charming tale. Something that seems like it's plucked from the pages of a storybook. We're going to need to go about as far west as we can go, down along the banks of the Hudson River to Fort Washington Park, which stretches along the Hudson River from 155th Street north past Fort Tryon Park up to Inwood Hill Park and that natural forest. Now, the park was named for Fort Washington, which was a fort that was built by the American rebels during the Revolutionary War, but it was captured by the British on November 16th, 1776. The site of that fort is today's Bennett Park, which is located between 183rd and 185th Street. But we're going down to the waterfront to the banks of the Hudson. So we, we began on the Harlem River, and now we're going to end on the Hudson River. Yes, and we're going down to a spot where the island of Manhattan kind of bulges into the Hudson River. It's roughly in line with like 179th Street. This part of the island uh, was once called Jeffrey's Hook. It was actually quite dangerous for passing boats and vessels because they would sometimes end up crashing into the rocks. And it can be a very tricky place to get to. But stick with me now, because I'm going to walk us from 181st Street and Broadway west down to Riverside Drive. But when you get down to Riverside Drive, then you have to cross the Henry Hudson Parkway. So actually, you have to walk north for a couple blocks along Riverside Drive and then cross the parkway over a little 
uh, a little bridge, a small pedestrian bridge. We're on the bridge, we're crossing, we're crossing the Henry Hudson Parkway. We're kind of in a cage, you know, those, those pedestrian bridges with the cages. Now, now we're actually walking just alongside the Henry Hudson Parkway. There are a few brave pedestrians walking by. Plenty of cyclists, it's a beautiful day. Now the path has started to curve around. I'm almost at the base of the George Washington Bridge, but I have to get underneath the southbound lane of the Henry Hudson Parkway. So we've curved around again, and the path is dropping in elevation as we get closer and closer to the river. And we've come to a tunnel that takes us underneath the southbound lane of the Henry Hudson Parkway. Wow, crossing the parkway has never been easier. I don't know that I do this at night. I'm walking through the tunnel now. Whoa, a bike just shot past me. Yeah, if you do this, watch for bikes. We are now taking a small wooden bridge that's crossing over the railroad tracks that continue south to Penn Station. These are tracks that are still in use by Amtrak. Farther south of here, of course, the tracks will go into a tunnel and will be covered by Riverside Park, but up here the tracks are exposed. And now we're on a beautiful path. It's dappled with sunlight through the trees. And ahead of us is the Hudson River. And high overhead is the George Washington Bridge. It's a pretty majestic view. There are even a couple little spots where you can step off the path and gaze out over the river. Things are getting noisier because we are approaching the underbelly of the George Washington Bridge. High above us, we can hear the traffic going back and forth between New York and New Jersey. We've arrived finally at the bottom of the path. We are in Fort Washington Park, right on the Hudson River, and I'm looking over at the George Washington Bridge, and before us stands the cutest little red lighthouse that you'll ever see. And that's the lighthouse that we're going to visit right now to find out how did this picture book perfect little red lighthouse get constructed here at the banks of the Hudson River and now standing underneath the George Washington Bridge. And so now I'm walking toward the little red lighthouse and we have a group of urban park rangers who are, who are waiting for us outside and who, are going, and who have graciously offered to take us inside. Uh, there's Lee, Nick, Rob, and Jill standing here. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hi. Hey, welcome. And it's a little bit noisy up here because we're at the, literally at the base of the George Washington Bridge. Um, do you think we can step inside? Absolutely. I see the yeah. door is open. Yeah, we're, we have the key. And actually, the rangers are the only ones that have the key. I like to tell the kids that. And we have this large key. Uh, they don't make keys like oh, this anymore. Wow. I wish you guys could see it in um, podcast world. Yeah, Lee is yeah. holding <laughs> up this beautiful brass key. Um, all right, well, let's head inside. Yeah. There's no reason to be afraid, right? <laughs> the red doors are open and we are stepping inside the cast iron little red lighthouse. Whoa, this is cool. There's a spiral staircase going up the middle of it. So back to the story of how this 
lighthouse wound up in this spot. It was not constructed here. No, it was not. It was actually in Sandy Hook, New Jersey, and it was constructed in 1880 over there and um, served its purpose there, did a great job, and then New Jersey decided to build another lighthouse that was going to be taller, and this area needed one desperately, so luckily New Jersey um, handed it over to Manhattan, and it's cast iron plates, and there's 48 of them, so it was taken apart over there and shipped down here and put together. Piece by piece. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so it was constructed here in 1921? Yes, it was um, put together here in 1921. Built into the Manhattan Schist bedrock that we're standing on over here. And um, you could see a whole bunch of rocks outside over here and how the rocks could have been a danger to... So yeah. it was really serving a purpose? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it kept those boats safe. If you think about it, it was kind of like a highway over here for all the ships going back and forth, bringing goods all the way up towards Albany. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very busy area. Yeah. So. There's a plot twist in the story when the George Washington Bridge is constructed and it opens in 1931. Yes. This lighthouse had been primarily useful for navigational purposes at night mm -hmm. to signal uh, to the passing boats. That was no longer needed uh, by uh, the time the bridge opened. Absolutely. So the bridge actually outshined the light of the lighthouse, took away its job, you know. <laughs> After um, about 10 years or so, um, you know, the Coast Guard decided to decommission the lighthouse, and they wanted to basically take it apart and auction off all this um, cast iron. But it stayed open, actually, um, even though they, they had decommissioned it. Absolutely, yeah. It was actually rescued from being um, taken down and taken apart and auctioned off because of yeah. um, children reading that story. But then something surprising happened that would alter the story of this little lighthouse. It was the publication in 1942 of Hildegard Swift's children's book, The Little Red Lighthouse and the Big Gray Bridge, with lovely illustrations by Lind Ward. The book recounted the story of the Little Red Lighthouse, which had been moved to this dangerous spot on the Hudson to help guide the passing boats in the night, only to find itself without a purpose when the massive gray bridge was constructed above it. Ultimately, however, the bridge would smile down upon the little red lighthouse and reassure it that, yes, it still, in fact, was very necessary. The bridge might be helping automobiles and light the skies to alert passing airplanes, but that little red lighthouse still helped guide the boats that were floating by during the night. Um, Even though they, they had decommissioned it. Absolutely, yeah. It was actually rescued from being... Um, taken down and taken apart and auctioned off because of yeah. um, children reading that story. They loved the lighthouse. They fell in love with the lighthouse and they wanted to save it from being taken away. It was kind of like a superhero celebrity to these kids that read this book. So for a number of years, though, mm -hmm. the lighthouse was standing underneath the bridge and not really necessary yeah, anymore. Yeah, basically being outshined by the electricity and all those light bulbs up on that bridge, yeah. <laughs> right, and here, here comes Hildegard Swift's book, The Little Red Lighthouse and the Great Gray Bridge, uh, with illustrations by Lynn Ward. And it really tells the story of that feeling, right, of being insignificant next to something that's much bigger than you. Yeah, very true, absolutely. However... Life was not a, a children's book, and it wasn't necessary anymore. <laughs> that is right. So basically, yeah, it was going to be taken apart, auctioned off, and then the children, after reading that book, would um, write letters to the Coast Guard and to the government officials, sending pennies and nickels, um, you, know, you know, writing these letters, and it really worked. So, so children writing letters and sending money actually changed the cold hearts of 
city planners and bureaucrats. <laughs> That's true. Really? Yeah, it's a great story. You know, that you can make a book out of that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a lot of uh, school groups who still visit the lighthouse today. Hundreds. We get hundreds of kids that come through here in the warmer months. And this is Nick. Are they still aware of this of this story? Yeah, a lot of the schools in uh, in the city and a lot of in even the tri-state region just are I mean, across the country as well. We'll be reading this book, and their their teacher loves to read it in class and then bring them here, and they get to see. Oh my goodness, this is an actual real place that we can actually go to, and um, tying it back to how kids of their exact age helped make the difference to make it so that this place still stands today, and people can go in it. I've seen some kids like actually get so excited they run up to the lighthouse and hug it. Oh, that is so sweet. <laughs> From the outside, it is true. Yeah, it, well, it, it is a very huggable lighthouse. Yeah. When they're walking the same trail that you took to get here, mm -hmm. and they see the lighthouse, you hear you hear the kids start whispering and then shouting, "There it is!" And they can oh. see it through the trees. How can our listeners visit the lighthouse? I mean, anybody can come up here any time of the day, any time of the year and see it from the outside, but when is it open to the public? Well, you can check our website, um, the Urban Park Rangers website, and it'll tell you when we're gonna open it up, usually on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. So we have um, a couple coming up this summer. So yeah, I know on July 4th, the 4th of July, we're gonna be here from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. And that's gonna be open. And of course, it's free to come in. You know, it's an open house for everybody to visit. And speaking of open houses, Open House New York will be doing that. And that will be in October. Absolutely, yeah, so that's October on a Saturday. Lighthouse Festival in September as well. Um, they've gotten notable people to come read the story. They usually set up all, there's a whole lot of fanfare. They'll have a stage set up. They've had even um, Isabella Rosalini has read the story. James, really? James Earl Jones came one year. I can't promise James Earl Jones this year, but he's come to read the story before. And, and, and the, the lighthouse itself has been restored in the past few years. It once again has a lamp that functions. That's right. Yeah, that was given to us by the Coast Guard about a year ago. It's a really bright orange light, and you can see it from you know, across New Jersey. Um, all the way up to Inwood. And uh, the lighthouse is a member of the Historic House Trust. Yep, and it's also on the National uh, Register of Historic Places as well. So w this whole time we've been standing at the bottom of the lighthouse. Is it possible to go up these steps? Absolutely. Let's oh, do it. okay. Okay, we're making our way up the steps. There are these little porthole windows. That's great. We've arrived at a landing and we can look out these porthole windows yeah, right underneath. Yeah, we safety rules for the little ones. Mm -hmm. So popular with kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Can we go up that steep yes, ladder? Yes, All right. There's a steep so ladder here. From everything to climb up except for that red door. The red door is about 50 pounds and it can move. So everything but I will not touch that red door. And then once we get into the landing room, you get to go through the world's smallest door to get out onto the deck. Oh, this is so exciting. So making our way up this ladder. Stepping up, I am now in the tip top of the lighthouse in the inside, enclosed in windows. There's a small little door that lets us out onto the little balcony. I'm going to step through here. We've arrived. We have arrived. It's a beautiful day. The sun is just sparkling off of the Hudson River. And when you get out here into the fresh breeze, you're, you're reminded that you are really in a natural space. Yeah, so we would like to remind the students that join us that this is a wild ecosystem along the Hudson River, that it's a tidal estuary. We like to share that information, details about the birds or any of the other life that lives around here. 
because you do have you do have wildlife. We do, yeah. So we have the peregrine falcons. Um, we have lots of migrating birds, a lot of resident birds. So it's a really perfect place for that. And when, and when we stand here and we look down the Hudson or up the Hudson, you really notice that we're on a spot of land that is like out into the river. Yeah, you can tell by looking south towards the city that we're actually sticking out into the river. So as you look south, you can see we're sticking out. And when you look up north towards Inwood Hill Park, you can see that this area of land is sticking out into the river and why it makes sense that so many unfortunate ships were crashing here. And this whole time that we're standing here, we are standing at the top of the lighthouse, but underneath that super busy George Washington Bridge, uh, which Nick, you just pointed out to me, is the busiest bridge in the world? Is the busiest bridge in the world, not just the country, not the state, but in the world with the most uh, vehicular traffic of on, any other bridge in the world. On two levels. Yep, on two, on two levels, the George Washington level and what was referred to lovingly as the Martha Washington level. <laughs> do you, how many of those people do you think notice this little red lighthouse? I would have to say a very small percentage because to be honest, before I was a park ranger, I didn't know that there was a lighthouse underneath the George Washington Bridge either. <laughs> it's easy to miss. Yeah, it is. And you know, we should note that in 1951, the city did take this on. It was the city's parks department that took on the lighthouse, right? And the parks department was led by Robert Moses. That's correct. Yeah. And despite the varied opinions that New Yorkers have of Robert Moses, we can thank him for saving the lighthouse and keeping it here. It's nice to have like a heartwarming, touching thing that he did. <laughs> it definitely is. Well, thank you, Nick and Jill and Lee and Rob. Thank you for bringing me and our listeners to the top of the Little Red Lighthouse. You're welcome. Yeah, come visit us. You know, look us up on the web and uh, find out when we're here and it's free. So come join us. Thank you. Tom, that was quite literally a storybook ending. <laughs> in fact, you're holding in your hand the very book about the little bread lighthouse with its vintage fonts and, and beautiful watercolor artwork. Yes. And nearly 80 years later, I can tell you that the book still still charms. Greg. And I thought that maybe it would be a nice, appropriate way to kind of wrap up this episode just by reading you the last passage from the book. Okay. Well, I'm all tucked in. <laughs> I have my warm <laughs> glass of milk. And now beside the great beacon of the bridge, the small beam of the lighthouse still flashes. Beside the towering gray bridge, the lighthouse still bravely stands. Though it knows now that it is little, it is still very, very proud. And every day, the people who go up Riverside Drive in New York City turn to look at it. For there they both are, the Great Gray Bridge and the Little Red Lighthouse. If you don't believe it, go see for yourselves. On our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, we're actually going to do something a little different with the article that accompanies this particular podcast. The associated article will give you a walking tour of 20 sites to visit in Washington Heights and Inwood because we just focused on four, but there are so many others from, from the Morris Jamel Mansion to the Cloisters and Fort Tryon Park to Audubon Terrace um, to, to Coogan's Pub where you and I had lunch. <laughs> yes. 
But wait, you're going to put those 20 places as a walking tour? Well, it's more like a walking slash subway tour because... Or an (laughs) e-bike. Or an e-bike, yeah. Because that is a lot of walking. (laughs) That's a lot of of walking, but will definitely make for an exciting day. Or two. So just look for the post, Secret Sites of Upper Manhattan, 20 Places to Visit in Washington Heights and Inwood. That's at BoweryBoysHistory.com. Also, a big thanks to all of our guests who joined us on today's show. And we should also mention that both the Dykeman Farmhouse and the Little Red Lighthouse are members of the Historic House Trust, which is a collection of 23 sites that tell over 367 years of New York City history. Visit historichousetrust.org to read more about these locations and find other historic spots across all five boroughs. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash boys. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash boys. It's because of your small monthly contributions that we are able to make this show. Join us on Patreon, and you'll join other listeners, such as Sharon K. in Manhattan, Patrick S. from Brooklyn, Mariah F. and Ron R. from Queens, Merle W. from Staten Island, Mark T. from Washington, D.C., Roger G. from San Francisco, Tom M. from Las Vegas. Is that me? (laughs) No, it's another Tom M. Uh, Holly W. in Austin, Texas, and Lena A. from Denmark. Thanks to this group and to all of our patrons. When you join us at Patreon.com, you also have special invites to our Bowery Boys patron-only events and parties. And of course, you can download our Bowery Boys Movie Club, where we speak in-depth about movies that were shot on location in New York City. Tom? Yes? It is officially summer, and I think would be a great time to take a Bowery Boys walking tour. Especially because we have some really cool new tours, including a hidden history of Greenwich Village walking tour, and also a new Central Park history tour. You will need to bring your camera along because there there will be so many vistas to take in. Read about these and all of the other great walking tours that we have at BoweryBoysWalks.com, and we hope to see you in the streets. So we've given you a lot of options for walking and exploring the city. Don't forget to stretch. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.